this morning we have two of our lovely young ladies to read God's word for us. They're going to read Psalm 146 to Psalm one and Psalm 150. So please stand for the lessons from the Old Testament. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that day, on that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord of his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets his prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he will bring he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sounds. Praise him with lutes and harp. Praise him with tambourines and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sound cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Praise everything Wait, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Amen. Okay, well, we started this last week. For those of you here, we did a little kid's sermon at the beginning, or like the kid's introduction. Um, And we're going to try to do that again this week. And so kids, wait. I would like you to pay attention the entire time, but special attention right now for the first few minutes. So I'm a bit of a word nerd, if you know what that is. It's basically somebody who really likes words like, is your favorite game Scrabble? Raise your hand. One other person possibly related to me. Yeah, right? Scrabble's an amazing game. Word nerds like me love the game Scrabble. And one of the things that I particularly enjoy about language is this thing called loan words. Do you know what a loan word is? A loan word is a word that comes from another language that a language will borrow into their language. And so a lot of the words that we consider normal English right now, like regular English words, actually originally were words from languages like Latin or German or French. And these days, there are still some words that we use that clearly come from different languages. And so I'm going to share some of these words with you. And you're going to tell me either if you know what the word literally means in the language that it comes from, or if you know how we use it in English. And some of these might be challenging. So adults, parents, you can help your kids with these if you know them. I'll give an example. So for instance, the French phrase, bon vivant. What, does anybody know what that means? 
literally translated? Hector. Good living. What does it refer to? It refers to uh, a person who enjoys the finer things of life. Right? They are a bon vivant. This one, I think, is a little more common. It comes from German. Gesundheit. When would you hear someone say Gesundheit? After someone sneezes. Right? What do we usually say? Bless you. But that's their word of saying gazun, or that's their way of saying bless you. They say gazunheit. Does anybody know what that means? In German, no, Rowan, no, you don't know German. It means health. Essentially, saying good health, healthiness, be healthy. All right. Here's a favorite of mine. I think a lot of people like this word, Schadenfreude. Does anybody know what schadenfreude is? Yes. Yes. The feeling you get of pleasure from someone else's misfortune. It's literally two German words, harm and joy, just stuck together. The joy you feel at someone else's misfortune. All right. Bon appetit. Has anybody ever heard that? It is French. When would you say bon appetit? What's that? Yeah, when you're about to eat. And it means good appetite. Good eating. Excellent. And I know there are a few lawyers among us, so this is for y'all. Latin. I know y'all love this phrase for some reason. Mutatis mutandis. Does anybody who's not a lawyer know what this means? Jack, did I hear, did I see a hand? It means things having been changed that need to be changed. In other words, once all the necessary changes have been made. Right, so this is a word that I hope all of us, even non-lawyers, will start to incorporate into our language. And I, fe- uh, I found a few fun ones that I don't think are yet in English that I think should be incorporated into how we normally talk to one another. So here they are. Italian. I don't know if anybody knows Italian here. Cavoli riscaldati. Anybody? That means reheated cabbage. And do you know what this refers to? The result of attempting to revive an unworkable relationship. Reheated cabbage. You don't, you don't want to eat reheated cabbage. Here's another one. This is from the language that they speak in the country of Georgia. And I think this, this I think, will, it will be commonly used in the Wong household. And I'm going to butcher this pronunciation probably. Shimome Jamo. Shimome Jamo. This is the feeling, you know when you're really full, but you can't stop eating? Because the meal is just so delicious. You know that feeling? That is Shimome Jamo. The word basically means I accidentally ate the whole thing. <laughs> so you come over to the house at the end of the meal, shimoma jamo. And the last one, I think proof that human nature is human nature no matter where you are. So if, do you know where Tierra del Fuego is? Have you ever heard of that place? It's like one of the most remote parts in the entire world. It's on the southern tip of South America. It's like one of those places where you go to and you're like the modern world over the past 500 years has not touched this place. Completely isolated. But they have a word in their language. Mami la pinatapai. 
Mami la pina tapa. And you know what this means? This word captures that special look. I think husbands and wives might know this look. Special look shared between two people. When both of them are wishing that the other person would do something that they want, but neither of them are willing to do themselves. Do you know that look? Mami lapi natapai. And the reason I bring all those up is because this morning we are going to be talking about an English word that comes from Hebrew that we use a lot. And that word is hallelujah. Did you know that hallelujah comes from two Hebrew words just put together? The first part is hallel, and the second part is yah. Hallel is a command meaning praise. And the second part, Yah, is a shortened form of Yahweh, which means the Lord. And so, Hallelujah then means to praise the Lord. But it's not a statement, it's not like an interjection saying praise the Lord. It's a command. It's a command either to yourself or to other people. And so, when you say Hallelujah, You're not just responding to an event. You are actually calling someone else to action. You're telling other people, yourself included, to praise the Lord. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The word of the day is hallelujah. Let's pray. This is the beginning prayer of the sermon, by the way, not the end. Just in case anybody was wondering. Lord, we are so thankful this morning. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We praise you for the wonderful songs of worship that you have gifted us with in this community of faith, that we can declare your truths. Help us to remember that even listening to your word in scripture is an act of praise and worship. As you communicate your truth to us and as we acknowledge you as our God and our King, we ask, Lord, that this morning that you would stir the affections within our hearts, that we might long to praise you, to recognize for you for who you are, as well as increasing within us desire that others, too, might come to know you. So, Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're nearing the end of our sermon series on the book of Psalms. We've been in the Psalms pretty much since the halfway point through the entire summer. This will be my last sermon on the Psalms next week. Blake is going to be opening us up, opening the scriptures for us in the Psalms. And then, after that, we'll start with the Gospel of Mark for the remainder of the fall. So if you recall, one of the first things I said about the book of Psalms is that the Psalms are the world-creating songbook for Jesus and his church. The world-creating songbook for both Jesus as well as his church, meaning that through reading and singing and praying and meditating on God's word in the Psalms, our hearts and our minds are shaped in a way that we have different values, different perspectives, different desires than what the world offers us. And I hope that you've benefited greatly from our time in the Psalms. The method that I suggested for us to read through the Psalms is to pick the Psalm of the date. For instance, today's the 18th, so we pick today we read Psalm 18, add 30 to that, 48, add 30, 78, read five Psalms every day with that method. And I hope hope that's been a really good experience for those of you of you who have done that. But one of the downsides of the method that I suggested is that I think it kind of prevents you from seeing the structure of the entire book of Psalms. 
Like, it can make it seem like the Psalms are kind of random or haphazard and don't really have any sort of overarching theme or message. When actually that is far from the case. You see, the, the book of Psalms is actually divided into five separate smaller books. And so if you read in your Bibles, you might see this. So like if you turn to Psalm 42, right before that, usually most English translations will say like book two. So in the Psalms, there's actually five separate books that comprise the entire book of Psalms. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the chapter numbers, including like the Psalm numbers, like so if I said today we're talking about Psalm 146, that number 146 was not originally part of the Psalm. That's something that was added hundreds, if not over a thousand years after the psalm itself was originally written. But the division into five books, that's very early. We don't have any copies of our Bibles that don't have the division into five books. Meaning, I think, the person, the editor or editors who originally brought all the psalms together and made it into this book of psalms, they intentionally divided it into five books. And whenever you have intention, then you have meaning or significance. So the question we need to ask is, why did the original editors choose to structure the book of Psalms in this way, in this five-fold division? And I think the clearest way or the best way to discover what the purpose of that structure is, is to look at the common refrain that's found at the end of each of the Psalms that end the particular book of the Psalms. And it's kind of confusing. But let's say book one of the Psalms is Psalm 1 to 41. Book two starts at Psalm 42. So the very last verse of Psalm 41 kind of is the conclusion of that book. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the conclusion of all five books of the Psalms, they're all very similar. And it indicates to us what is the overarching message of the entire book of the Psalms. So I'm going to read fairly quickly what those final concluding verses are of each book. Psalm 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Psalm 72, verse 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 89, 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And the very last verse in all the Psalms, Psalm 150, verse 6, that name we read for us this morning. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. See, the structure of the book itself conveys or reinforces the message of the entire book. And if, as I noted earlier, the Psalms are the songbook for the community of faith intended to cultivate within us a different set of perspectives, different set of values, different desires in the world around us, then the overarching theme that the Psalms are trying to cultivate within us and still within us can be summed up in our word of the day. Hallelujah. You see, hallelujah is a word that only appears in the Psalms. Not sure if you realize that. You don't find the word hallelujah anywhere else in the Old Testament, but only in the Psalms. First it appears in Psalm 104, so fairly late in the Psalter, and then 21 times after that. And these occurrences, though, they're not sprinkled randomly throughout, like, you know, a hallelujah there or a hallelujah there. But they're found in very ordered ways. They come at the beginning and the end of psalms that are traditionally called hallelujah psalms. You see, 
Hallelujah is more than simply an expression of joy or relief. You know, I think that's how most people these days use the word. I've used it that way myself. It's not a synonym for, I'm so happy, or that's a relief. Hallelujah, actually, as one commentator puts it, is a call to action. It's a call and a command to recognize and acknowledge and ultimately worship the God, the King who creates and sustains all things. And we can see that in Psalm 146, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Psalm 146 is the first of the last five psalms in the entire Psalter. It's like the conclusion, the very end of the book. In Psalm 146, it begins and ends with the word, Hallelujah. Basically showing us what is our life of praise supposed to look like. And it makes it clear that praising the Lord consists of more than simply singing songs to the Lord. Although, it's very important to remember, it's not less than that. So if you, first, uh, Psalm 46, 146 verse 1 says, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, O my soul. Then the very next verse says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So one important element of praising the Lord is singing songs to him. So kind of as an aside, singing songs of praise to the Lord is an essential part of the Christian life. Even for those of us who consider ourselves not to be very good singers, it might be embarrassing for us to sing in the midst of God's people. We're very afraid that people would hear us when we sing. Yet the main principle we have as a church in congregational worship when we gather is that word, congregational. That's the most important aspect of our worship, that is the people of God gathered together, singing praise to God. So the primary focus then is not on the performance, the musicians, no matter how wonderful the music is, but the focus is on us together as a congregation singing praise to the God who saves us. Singing songs is a vital part of praising the Lord, and we shouldn't minimize that. That's what verse 2 tells us. Praise the Lord, sing praises to him. But immediately after that, he transitions, that is the psalmist, to the all-important biblical concept, and the one that we're going to focus on this morning, of trust. Other words like trust are faith, loyalty, reliance. He says in verse 3, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. You see, the biblical testimony is that you only have two options of where to put your trust. One, you're going to put your trust in God. Or two, you're going to put your trust in something other than God. Now, as you see in verse 3, you can put your trust in what the Bible calls princes. I think more closely we would call something like politics, government. But that's not the only thing you can put your trust in. There's a host of other things that you can put your trust in. You can put your trust in other people, your family, your spouse, your parents, or you put your trust in yourself, your money, your job, your looks, your grades, your work ethic. It can be almost anything. You know, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory, which means that within every single one of us is a superpower. We have this ability within all of us to take anything and make it an object of worship. It's one of the things that we're best at. And unfortunately, 
oftentimes those things are not God. So here's a simple test to determine where does your trust lie. When you encounter any sort of difficulty or disappointment in your life, or have in the past, to whom or to what do you immediately turn for comfort and assurance? What are the things that go on in your heart and your mind? You say things like, well, at least I still have my job. Or, you know what, let's just go away. Let's just get away, take a break, go away for a time. You know what, if I just work a little bit harder, I can make it right. Let's eat, let's drink, let's pray. Not pray, play. We should pray, but sometimes we say let's play. When we immediately turn to other things besides the Lord for help or relief, it may be an indication that our hearts are trusting in the wrong things. You see, it's not that the things we trust in are bad necessarily. Well, all those things are good things. But they're not ultimately trustworthy because Scripture tells us that they're finite, they're transient, they don't last, they're limited. Verse 4, why do we not put our trust in princes? Because when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. If you put your ultimate trust in anyone or anything other than the Lord, they will ultimately fail you. The question is then, according to the psalmist, why should we place our trust in Yahweh? And that's what the rest of the psalm is about in verses 5 through 9. That'll read for us again. Verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked, the Lord will bring to ruin. So so this morning I have four brief observations based on these verses. First, number one, verse five. This verse should immediately make us think of Psalm 1. Remember, way back when I asked us to memorize Psalm 1, so hopefully it's in there somewhere. But when the Bible says, blessed is the one who, our ears should immediately perk up. If you want the blessedness of God, if you want God's blessing, and there is no more precious thing in all the world than God's blessing in your life. If you want that, God tells you exactly how to get it. It's not a mystery. What does Psalm 1 tell us? If you want God's blessing, don't walk in the way of the wicked, but instead, delight yourself in the law of the Lord and on his law meditate day and night. Here in verse 5, it says, the way to be blessed is not to work hard and never give up. It doesn't say that. It's not to sacrifice your relationships and your physical health on the arduous path to success, that's not blessedness. No, it says, the guaranteed path to success, the only path to success, is simply to look for God, for help in your time of need, and to hope in His salvation. That's it. So simple. Because notice... Secondly, notice who the primary actor of every single action in the psalm is. 
God doesn't ask you to do anything. The reason why you can put your hope and trust in him and look for him to help is that he is the one who made heavens and earth and the seed is all that is in him, in them. In the ancient worldview, the heavens, the earth, and the sea comprise all of reality. There's nothing else in physical, material reality. And what the psalm is saying is God made it all and he is over it all. He is the one who will do it. The Old Testament is unequivocal in teaching that it is the Lord who will act to bring about his kingdom in your life and in the world. Thirdly, verses 7 through 9 tells us what the nature of this kingdom that God is bringing about is like. We'll be talking a lot more about this when we look at the Gospel of Mark, because really the Gospel of Mark is about, and all the Gospels, is about the kingdom of God that Jesus is ushering in through his life, death, and resurrection. But one of the most important principles when reading Scripture is to be aware that the New Testament is not a new story. Right? It's easy. When you hear New Testament, of course, it makes it feel like it's something new, and there is newness to it, but you have to remember that the New Testament primarily is a continuation of the old story, the story that God and his kingdom has been telling us about from the very beginning. So when New Testament writers like Mark, when they start talking about the kingdom of God, this isn't a new concept for Jesus and his hearers. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from places like 146. And what do we learn about God's kingdom from this passage? We learn that the unique and surprising work of God is so frequently contrary to human expectations and human practices. Or you might have heard before that God's kingdom is like an upside-down kingdom, right? Where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's not a new idea. That comes straight out of the Old Testament. The kingdom that God's people were looking forward to was a kingdom in which the oppressed in our world will not be oppressed any longer, but will receive justice. The hungry will not be hungry, but they will receive food. The prisoners will be set free. The blind will receive sight. Those who are bowed down will be lifted up. The righteous that the world hates, God will love. The sojourners who have no place, no one to take care of them, the Lord will watch over. The widow and the fatherless, he will uphold. Note, the same ills that plague all people in our world still plague the people in God's kingdom. Right? They're still blind. There's hungry. The difference is, God promises that he will rescue them. They will receive help from the Lord in the midst of their adversity. And lastly, I want to focus on the sojourners, the widows, and the fatherless. These three groups of people you find all throughout the Old Testament. And it seems that God has a special place in his heart for the sojourners, the widows, and the fatherless, or the orphans. Now, why is that? It's because these people are all people who recognize that they're in situations where they cannot help themselves. They have no choice but to look outside themselves for help. Right? Contrary to common belief or that common saying, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. So I think the challenge for us this morning, particularly for those who feel like we can help ourselves, that we almost have everything that we need, is how can we cultivate a heart within us that recognizes our inability to save ourselves, to not trust in ourselves and our own abilities and our resources. That is the kind of posture 
that God is trying to cultivate within us. These are the poor and the poor in spirit of whom Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is God's blessedness. And lastly, the final verse in the psalm tells us the most important truth about God's kingdom. And the most important truth about God's kingdom is that in God's kingdom, the Lord himself is king, and he will be king forever. Verse 10, The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. And the last word of the psalm is, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So I think one application for us this morning is that hallelujah should enter into the common vocabulary of our church. Psalm 146, and really the entire Psalms, the entire Psalter, they suggest that the word hallelujah should always be a word ready to spring forth within us, not only in response to the great blessings and great actions of God in our life, but even among the seemingly small and insignificant ways that God shows himself to be present among us, to be our ever-present help in our times of need. We are called and told to command one another, because remember I said hallelujah, it's a command that we give one another that invites a response from the listener. So we are called to command one another to recognize and acknowledge and ultimately worship the king who creates and sustains all things. So do you remember how I said that the word hallelujah only appears in the Psalms? Well, that's not, it's not entirely true. The word hallelujah only appears in the Psalms in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, hallelujah becomes a loan word. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. The New Testament Greek takes the word hallelujah, and that's where we get the word alleluia, like without H. You know, like that song, All Creatures of Our God and King, we say alleluia. That's the same word in Hebrew as hallelujah. So they take a loan word, and it's only used four times in the Holy New Testament, and it's all the way at the very end in the book of Revelation. And I love, you know I love talking about the book of Revelation at the end of my sermons. I don't know if you noticed that. You probably have. But I love talking about the book of Revelation at the end of our sermons. And the reason is because I think it really crystallizes the idea that everything that we're doing now, it's a dress rehearsal. It's practice. It's preparation for what we will one day do forever. We can't lose sight of that. So there are four hallelujahs in Revelation chapter 19. The first three hallelujahs refer to God's judgment and wrath against his enemies, which is a whole other sermon in and of itself. But I want to focus on the last hallelujah. Because the last hallelujah in all of Scripture, Revelation 19, verse 6, is the hallelujah that all of our present day hallelujahs to ourselves and to one another are preparing us for. When the reign of God, the kingdom of God, will finally be fully made manifest over all of his creation. So this is Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. The vision is all Christians of all time gathered together. Their sound was like the roar of mighty, many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, and they were all crying out together, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Hallelujah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we desire to have hearts that when confronted with all the ups and downs, the trials of life, that we would have a heart that instantly says, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Yet we confess so oftentimes that it's not our hearts. We turn to other things for comfort, security, relief from the pain and difficulties of life. We confess those sins before you, Lord, and ask that you would turn our hearts back to you, that you would remind us that you are the only one who can truly help us because you are the one who is eternal. We praise you, Lord, because you are the creator of all things, and that includes each one of us. I thank you for every individual that you have brought here this morning, and I pray that the Spirit indeed will be working in all of our hearts in order order that we might clearly see your grace and truth in the gospel and that our hearts might more quickly, more easily, more heartily, more joyfully proclaim to one another, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We do thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.